Will you pray with me and then we'll jump into the word. Lord, thank you for this evening again. Thank you for the gift of your word and thank you for the gift of your spirit who speaks to us through it. We ask that you would, as Pablo prayed, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you have here for us. Um, It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. So in this series, we are looking at the city that does not last, the city of man. And last week, we looked at how it came to be, how it was created, its founding. And we saw that the greatest cost of the founding of the city of God was the loss of humanity's relationship with God. And yet we also saw that in and amongst that ruin, God himself is making his own city that he is building his own city amidst the ruin of the city of man. He is preserving a remnant amidst the ruin. And this week, we begin to trace out the effects of the city of man. From its founding on, we're going to begin to see where the cracks and where the fractures go out into all of the city of man and the kinds of ruin it brings about. Because ruin reaches and affects everything. But what we're going to see, especially tonight is that so does remnant. Ruin reaches and touches everything in the city of man. And so does remnant. Even the most intimate and painful of the things in the city of man. So let's go there. This is Genesis chapter 3 still. We skipped a lot of good stuff last time because we're going to deal with it tonight. Uh, In verses 8 through 11, which we spent a lot of our time in last week, we saw uh, man and woman hide from God. And God comes and seeks them and says, where are you? And he says, I hid from you because I was naked and I was afraid. And God asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then we didn't talk about anything else that comes after And this is where we saw the loss of humanity's relationship with God. And in this next verse that we've not looked at yet, we're going to see the very next thing that goes. The very first place after the loss of relationship with God where ruin reaches and touches and destroys. And it's in Adam's answer to this question from God. So let's look at it. So God asks, have you eaten? This is Adam's answer. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now the weight of Adam's response here lies in us understanding the picture the author of Genesis has painted for us of Adam. We typically focus on the eating as the big thing, and it is the big kind of final thing that ruins it all. But there is a picture that has been painted of Adam. You see it, and then you hear his response. You have a totally different understanding of what Adam has just said. So let's make sure we get that picture. First thing we need to recognize about this whole interaction with God is who God is speaking to. He is not speaking to man and woman. He is speaking to Adam. He comes into the garden, and the text says that he calls to the man. And the man is the one who answers. And God asks that man, Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is a conversation between God and Adam. And God wants to know, Adam, have you eaten of this tree? So far in the story, Adam has failed time and again to do what is expected of him, as he will do so here. 
First, he fails to properly tell his wife what is commanded about this actual tree. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, this is where we get God's command about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says to Adam, because Eve's not been created yet, God says to Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then immediately we get the creation story of the woman. And so the law about not eating of this certain tree is given to one person. And it's given to Adam with the expectation that he would pass it along to any other humans, especially the person that gets created next. And we know that he did pass it along because down in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the serpent and Eve or or the woman are having a conversation about this tree. The serpent asks a question, and this is what the woman says she's been told about this tree. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, and remember, she wasn't there to know this, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you notice a difference? God told Adam not to eat of the tree. For some reason, Eve thinks the command is, do not eat of the tree and don't even touch it. That is not what God said in verse 17. So what's happened there? Adam, apparently realizing this is a big deal, we should not eat of this tree, thinks it's wise to say, well, if we shouldn't eat of it, we should just stay away and not touch it. And that sounds wise. But what that reveals about Adam is that he doesn't trust God. God's word's not good enough. God's word needs a little bit of supplication. It needs to be added to. It needs to be increased. We need to be even more careful than even God is. And so Adam fails in delivering the word he's received from God to the woman, not by not telling her, but by adding to it, by infringing on it, by twisting it and making it his own word. But it's not only in the giving of the word to uh, to the woman that Adam fails. Eve is having this conversation with the serpent. The serpent is trying to get her to believe nothing bad will happen if she eats of this tree. And we all know the story, she eats of the tree, and so does Adam. What makes this particularly horrific is that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which I know that's jumping a long way, you don't need to go there, but Paul just makes the comment. Now, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was and became a transgressor. Now, that sounds like, well, way to go, Adam. You weren't deceived. Oh, that sucks, woman. You were. You must not be trustworthy. That's not how that works. If your grandma comes to you tomorrow and says, Honey, I think I've made a mistake. I got an email from a Nigerian prince, and I gave him $5,000. And I believed him, and now I'm thinking it was a scam. And you go, Yeah, grandma, that was a scam. She was tricked. It's bad. She's messed up royally, pun intended. If I come to you later that day and I say, you know what, I got that same email and I knew it was fake because we all know those emails are fake, but you know what, I just decided to give the guy $5,000 anyways. Knowing it was fake, knowing it wasn't real. Who messed up worse? Who's more at fault? The person deceived or the person not deceived and still went along with it? Clearly the person who was not deceived and went along with it. So what does Adam do in this picture? Remember Paul says Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was. So Adam's standing there as his wife has a conversation with the serpent. And we know he was there because when he, she gives him the fruit, it says in verse 6, she also gave some to her husband who was there with her. Adam is there for the entirety of this conversation. He knows it's a lie. 
He knows it's not true. He knows Eve has gotten the command wrong. He's not deceived by any of this. And yet he continues to stand there and not do anything. He doesn't say, no, this is wrong, honey. He doesn't smack the fruit out of her hand as she lifts it to her mouth. He just sits by the whole time, not being deceived, and lets his bride fall. And then, still not being deceived, jumps in with her. He knows the whole time what's happening. He's not deceived, and yet he lets his wife be deceived, does not protect her, and then jumps in with her. This is the Adam that Genesis has shown us thus far. He's not some morally neutral agent and Eve comes in and taints him. Adam knew the serpent was lying the whole entire time and he still did not protect his wife and allowed her to be deceived. Now all that setup is important because it sheds light on how twisted and perverse Adam's response to God's question is. This is Adam, the one originally given the word from God to pass on, and he corrupts it, and the one who watches his wife be tricked by the serpent and enter death, and then he jumps in right after her, the whole time knowing exactly what was happening. That's the Adam that gets the question, have you eaten of the tree of which I told you not to? And this Adam has the gall to reply to God, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me gave me fruit, and I ate of it. (laughs) Yahweh, don't look at me. You gave me this woman. It's kind of on you, God, and it's especially on this woman. She gave me the fruit. Adam absolutely passes the buck when anyone reading the story would say if anyone's carrying the majority of the responsibility for this entire situation, it is him, which is why the entire Bible lays it at Adam's feet and never again at the woman's. When you realize the role that Adam played in twisting God's words and then letting his wife fall and then taking the fruit for himself without being deceived, it's almost hard to read Adam's response without becoming furious. Like, what are you, Adam? You got the word from God and you gave it wrong. You didn't do anything when she was being tricked and deceived. You let your bride enter death and then you're gonna lay it at God and her feet? If that Adam didn't sound so much like this Adam, myself, I would be even more furious. We saw last week that the first and ultimate thing to be corrupted in the city of man is the relationship between God and man. The second thing is the relationship between man and woman. In Adam's blaming of his wife, he pushes her away. That's what blaming someone is. When you're blamed with something and you didn't do it or you don't want to believe, be believed to have done it, you place the blame in someone else's hands and shove them as far away from you as possible. That's what the phrase, oh, it wasn't me, it was them. You're pushing them away, shoving them away. And that is what Adam does with his wife. But what's interesting is that after the fall, when they both eat the fruit, they don't do that to each other yet. They make clothes together. They're naked and they're ashamed, but they do not run from each other. They still have some kind of unity. They make the, the clothes together and then they hide together. If you play ever hide and seek, it's not good to hide with another person. That's more dangerous to get caught, but they hide together. Man and woman fall together. They make clothes together and they hide together until this point. 
until God asked, did you eat of the fruit? At this point, even the post-fall unity that Adam and Eve still have, that survived the fall somehow, Adam burns it all down. He throws it to the wind along with his wife. He says it's not worth being unified with her. She's now a threat to me. Adam does take responsibility at the very end. He does say, I ate it. But it's the responsibility of a victim forced to do something they didn't want to do. He lays the blame at everyone else's feet, God's and his wife's, when in reality, by any standard, anyone looking at the story would agree Adam is the one who carries the bulk of the responsibility, which is why God goes and addresses him first. Adam begins to see his wife, or sorry, his, this woman, not as, as his wife, but as an object of danger that he wants to push away and get away from him so that he can remain standing. Because in the city of man, it is better that anything and everything and everyone else burn as long as I remain standing. And he thinks that's an option for him in this situation. This action of Adam is played out on repeat throughout the city of man up into today. And what this breakdown between man and woman will look like from the man's side is that he will view woman as an object. So we see Adam do. Something he can draw close or push away, whatever serves him best in that moment. She is a tool to be used for his own pleasure or blame to absolve him of any responsibility and guilt at whatever he decides. Because she's woman. She's from Adam. That's what her name literally means. Woman means from Adam. So he thinks she's mine to do with, how I please this is exactly what we see play out in the Old Testament between men and women. Whether it's Abram lying that his wife Sarai is his sister so that she's taken into the king's harem potentially to be slept with because he's afraid if they know she's my wife and she's pretty, they'll kill me for her. So why don't you just pretend to be my sister and whatever happens, happens, honey. That's our father of the faith. Whether it's Jacob's daughter Dina who was tricked and assaulted in a foreign city, or another one of Jacob's children, Judah, who misuses his daughter-in-law, Tamar, or if it's the concubine in the story of the Levite's concubine where she's brutalized and judges, or if it's David's raping of Bathsheba, the Old Testament in no small part is a laying out of this horror between man and woman. It is a long history of what happens when ruin enters the scene between man and between woman. Men begin to view women as nothing more than an object that they can use for their own discretion, whether that be forcing himself upon them or tossing her away, if that helps him better. This is how the ruin of the city of man reaches men and therefore marriage from the man's side. But it's not only the man that ruin reaches. It touches woman as well as all of creation, as we learn in this, past, this later passage as well in verses 16, really 14 through 19. But before we look at the specifics of those, I want to be clear on what's happening. Often we talk about verses 14 through 19, you'll notice like it's kind of in a poetry way in your Bible probably, and we call them the curses, like the false curses, the curses that come on man and woman. I just want to be clear, the word cursed in this passage is only ever used of two things, the serpent and the ground. 
What happens, what God delivers here in this pronouncement is not a cursing of man and woman. They've already been cursed by their actions. Death hangs over their head. What God is delivering is, yes, a curse onto the serpent and revealing the curse now on the ground. And for man and woman in the middle, what he's showing is the natural outworking of what this fall is going to do to them. Everything he's going to mention that's painful and that's hard now are all things you can find in Genesis 1 through 2. They are good things that have now become corrupted. They are good things that have now become ruined. And that's important to say because you could read this and be, and it's just God's like torture list of like, well, man and woman have, have messed up. How should I punish them? And here's all these ways I'm going to do to them. He's going to make these new ways of punishing. And that's not what's happening. He's just almost in grace and love revealing to them, this is what it's going to be like now. Just so you know the world you're walking in now, this is what it's going to be like. I think that's worth saying so we read these in the correct way. So, the first person he talks to is a serpent. We're going to save him for the end. The first human he talks to is woman. And I want to pick up on verse 16, the second half, because it mirrors exactly, I think, what we've seen with Adam and the ruining of marriage or relationship between man and and woman. Woman is told two things that are going to be affected, and this is the second one, but we're going to start with it because it matches up with Adam's. This is the second half of verse 16 of chapter 3. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So this is the first thing. Not only is man's relationship with woman ruined from his side of things, but apparently man and woman's relationship is ruined from the woman's side as well. God tells the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Now that's an incredibly controversial verse that people debate about. The only other fr- place that phrase, contrary to, or it can be tra- translated toward, like T-O-W-A-R, I say that word, word, toward. The only other place that phrase shows up is in the next chapter of Genesis, actually. Chapter 4, verse 7. God's talking to Cain, and he tells him this because of his anger. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, here's what's going to happen. Sin is crouching out the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the same kind of inverse of what we get in chapter 3. Same kind of weird contrary to, but could be translated toward, and then this ruling language. And it's clear what it means in the Cain instance. Cain's angry. And sin is crouching out the door, and it is contrary to him. Even if you translate it toward, it's not a nice thing. Sin is coming at him. Sin wants to go against him. It's not a toward like, oh, I want to be toward you. It's a, I want to destroy you, is what sin wants over Cain. And God tells Cain, so you need to rule over it, or it's going to rule over you. So, that helps us read back, okay, what's going on in the Eve situation? Apparently, now... A wife's desire will be contrary to her husband. If you're married, you may know exactly what that's talking about. If you're not, and you get married, you may find out. There's going to be a battling of wills. Where before the fall, there was glad submission from the woman to the husband because he actually exercised good headship. Now, there is going to be a battle. Maybe because the husband's not exercising right headship. Maybe because the woman thinks, I could do a better job at leading this family than this guy. Maybe because she just has this desire to be the ruler. I don't, it could look a hundred different ways. But the idea here is that you and your husband are going to butt heads. 
and he is going to rule over you. Not in a domineering sense, but in the way it's always meant to be. Remember, these are not punishments. These are good things gone awry. Man was always the head of the family. He will remain so even post-fall. But now, because sin has entered the picture, that relationship is going to be divisive and a battle. And if it sounds crazy, get married and you'll find out. Marriage has been ruined by the fall. Ruin has reached the most intimate of human relationships, that of husband and wife. One of the most painful places the city of man will implement its rule is between man and woman. And as we'll see throughout the remaining chapters of Genesis and in life in general, if it reaches here between man and woman, it will reach and ruin all of human relationships. Now for the second thing woman is told. This is the first part of 16. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Again, a good thing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's still the command for Adam and Eve. But where once that would have been a painless, beautiful endeavor, it will now be filled with pain. Physical and emotional. God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain so you bring forth children. Now, I've never birthed a child myself, clearly, but I've been in the room for two of them without medicine. And I can just tell you, and they didn't have medicine back then. Let me just tell you, it's a war zone. It is a horrific, scary, and I'm not trying to scare anybody who's going to have kids, but it's, it's a battle. It's like, and it's painful to watch. I can't imagine going through it. And it's funny to laugh about, but when... I can't imagine for women, if you've had children and you think, it did not have to be this way. There was a time when to bring forth a child would have been a painless experience. And not just on the physical side, but the emotional. Because now, ruin infects childbearing in more ways than just physical pain. Sometimes the mom doesn't make it. Sometimes the child doesn't make it. Sometimes both do, but sin is infected and caused ruin to where there's birth defects that should not be there, but there are, and it's painful. Childbearing also includes not just birthing a baby and you leave it there, but you raise it, and there's pain in childbearing. This entire process of bringing forth humans, of feeling the earth, has now been made incredibly painful. It's hard to even talk about out loud, but we have to because this is the pain that Yahweh wants us to see is involved in what Adam and Eve have done. Not just the physical, but sometimes the emotional pain will accompany birth and the raising up of children. This is not a new curse. It's a natural fallout of the founding of the city of man. Ruin has reached the physical and the emotional realities of bearing, fr being fruitful and multiplying. Humanity still has attached to populate the world, but now it will do so shrouded in all kinds of pain. But it isn't just between man and woman. I wish it was. We just got to keep going. It's not just between man and woman or woman and child where the ruin has reached. These are foundational cracks. God and man, man and woman, humanity in general, these are the foundations of the city of man and it's cracked, it's fractured and they jut out and there's another foundation that everything else we'll see is gonna flow from in Genesis 4 through 11. And it's that the creation itself 
has been ruined. This is verses 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice he quotes himself again and doesn't include the touch. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This one doesn't take a ton of time. Adam's taking dominion over the land remains his calling, but now it will be full of sweat and thorns and pain. The ground is now cursed. It's ruined. Romans 8.24 says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Creation groans. Some way the ground and the galaxies groan in the pains of childbirth. A.K.A. they are bringing forth their own kind of fruit. But like woman now, it will be a painful process. The ground meant to sustain human life will now resist our hands. It will war with us metaphorically and literally because now the creation will kill us. Through hurricanes and floods and tornadoes, and earthquakes, and all kinds of natural disasters, we are now, in a sense, at war with creation when at beginning we were supposed to be the caretakers. And now we're still called to be the caretakers, but against this thing that is utterly broken and fractured. Ruin inserts itself between God and humanity, between humanity and itself, and also between humanity and creation. Everything, even the ground, Even the grass, even the dust, whales and bears and goats, black holes and planets and shooting stars, the whole creation has been infected and decreated. There is no inch where the ruin has not reached. This is our second picture of ruin. I told you it was going to be a very cheery series. The most intimate of human relationships is shattered and all other human relationships implied with it, including the one between a mother and her baby. All of them, every human relationship that has ever existed, filled with pain. And not only human-to-human relationships, but the relationship between creation and humanity is spoiled now too. Bleak and desperate is the picture. But never hopeless. One thing to remember about remnant, I said it earlier in case you fell asleep, one thing to remember about remnant the remnant that God is preserving and propagating, is that just like ruin, it also spreads. And it affects everything that it touches. Remnant doesn't just coexist alongside ruin. It is stronger than ruin. They cannot coexist. So whatever ruin remnant reaches and touches, it transforms it. Not just at the end when God comes back and makes all things right, although that is the case, but right here, right now, when ruin, a remnant touches ruin, it is ruin that is transformed into remnant, not the other way around. And we see a picture of this in the story. Immediately after this curse to Adam, or this pronouncement to Adam and his wife, the first thing we read is that Adam renames his wife. Up to this point, she's just called woman every time. I've messed up. I meant to call her woman every time tonight, but I've messed up and called her her actual name. 
But up until this point in the text, she's called the woman. Because that's what Adam originally named her, from man. And now, given the fall and the curse that they have just heard, Adam feels compelled, Lord help him, to rename this woman. Adam, who earlier in this chapter shifted all the blame onto this woman as if she's some toss-away object he wants nothing to do with. Adam, who was right there with her and got the command directly from the mouth of God and who Paul said was not deceived, which makes his falling even worse than this woman's, and then has the gall to blame her for it. This Adam, in the wake of hearing the curses, his wife and himself and his children and all of humanity and all of creation will now endure, this Adam is going to give his wife a new name. What would you expect this Adam to name this woman, having blamed her for all of it before he heard the consequences, and now having heard how horrific they are, what in the world would this man name this woman? Well, let's look. Verse 20. Then man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver. And even its spelling resembles the word for living. Adam, to what should be an utter shock to anyone paying attention, turns and names his wife, this woman, giver of life. What can explain that? That's not what I would have expected. Maybe you were like, yeah, that's what he's going to... He hates her. And then he turns and names her life giver? How do you make sense of a total reversal in Adam's attitude and heart toward his wife? The last thing he spoke was blaming her. The next thing he speaks is blessing her. How does that happen? How do we explain the fact that in eight verses, Adam goes from a scorched earth policy towards his wife where he blames it all on her and wants nothing to do with her, to him hearing the awful consequences of what he believes she brought onto him. And now he's naming her giver of life, an honoring title, a beautiful title. What causes that in Adam? But not only that question, we need to ask another. Why does Adam find this name fitting? Why in the world does Adam find, after these curses, it appropriate to name her life giver? She's the one, in his estimation, that's the death giver. She introduced death into this whole experience. And not only that, it can't be that she's, well, she'll have the babies. Yeah, but the baby she's going to have, we've read, is going to be painful and they're going to die. So if she's the life giver in that sense, it's ironic and tragic and kind of twisted. It's a sarcastic, oh, you're the giver of life, all right, because you'll have babies that will only die. But I don't think that's what's happening here. So how does he call her life giver when it seems death has been brought in by these two only? And then how does he get there in his heart anyways to want to give her an honoring title? Well, it's in the part we skipped. Turn back with me to... Verses 13 through 15 of chapter 3. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. 
And then God says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Not between you and the man, interestingly. Between you and the woman. And between your offspring, the serpent's offspring, and if we're not clear, the serpent is Satan. So let's just talk about snakes. The serpent's offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. I will put enmity between you and the woman, not the man, the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be a war, God says. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be embitteredness. There's going to be battle between the woman and the serpent, between her offspring and the serpent's offspring. Eve will produce Adam and Eve's who will produce more Adam and Eve's who will produce more Adam and Eve's and they their whole lives until they die and they go on and on and on and on until today will be at war with the offspring of the serpent. Until one of her offspring produces a unique one. Apparently Eve will have another Eve way down the line who will produce an Adam who is not like all the others before him. He shall bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. There is coming a one of the offspring of this very woman who will also struggle with the serpent, but who will not be defeated by him in death. This one, this offspring, will taste death like all the rest of the Adams, like all the rest of the children of Eve but he will rise again, crushing the very head that bit him. This one, this offspring, will bruise, will strike, will crush the head of this very serpent, defeating him while being wounded in the process. The first words out of Yahweh's mouth in response to sin is a curse of the serpent. The second and the first part addressed to humanity where they're hearing and themselves talked about is a word of grace. It's gospel. The first gospel. You will bear a son who will undo all of this. He will crush this serpent's head and he will redeem you. The woman, the one who took and ate of the fruit first, the one who was tricked while her husband stood by and let it happen, and then brought her husband into it with her. From this woman will come the Savior of the world. From her came ruin, and from her will come remnant, a singular offspring who will bring ultimate restoration. In the face of utter ruin, Yahweh pronounces ultimate remnant. So why the reversal in Adam? And how can he get away with calling her the giver of life? Because Adam, just like he was there standing beside his wife in front of the serpent, is here standing beside his wife. And they both hear this good news. This ultimate remnant that is coming from Yahweh. He hears that the woman he blames for all of this gets told that she will bear the son 
who will make it right again. He overhears the hope that all is not lost after all. That all will be regained through the descendant of this woman, his wife. He hears that he and she and all of humanity have received grace from Yahweh in the promise of a deliverer and it has affected Adam to the core. It's the only way I can make sense of it otherwise for him to have this shift is that the very woman he wants to shove away and have nothing to do with, he now sees is the means to his restoration because she will bear Eve and an Adam who will bear Eve's and Adam that all the way down will bear a Mary who will bear a Jesus, the new Adam, who will go redeem all the way back his original parents. Where once there was brokenness, there is now a recovered wholeness. Where once there was blame and bitterness pouring from the mouth of Adam and from his heart towards his wife, there is now mercy and blessing. Where once there was blame shifting that entails pushing something away from you, there is now a pulling as close as possible. Where once there was ruin between Adam and his wife, now, and not only one day, but now, remnant touches ruin and transforms it. And here is why that's good news for us. Because we are Adam and Eve. All of us Adams have twisted God's words. Either on purpose or by accident, we've twisted and believed our own words over his. We failed to step up to the plate and to do what's expected of Adams, to protect and provide, whether it's our wife or our girlfriend or any woman in our life. And we've blame shifted and said it's them and wanted nothing to do and used women as objects. I feel comfortable saying about every Adam in the room. And then we've got Eves, who have entertained strange voices. Like, you don't talk to snakes. Snakes shouldn't talk. She should have never listened. But Eve's entertain strange voices, and every time they do, they usually get deceived by their lies. Believe false things about themselves, that they need things they don't already have from God, and they go chasing those things. Maybe expecting, well, if this was wrong, the guy I'm with would protect me, only to be let down. Every single one of us is touched by ruin, I think especially here, where it's ruined between man and woman. Whether you're married or dated or you've been single your whole life, every single one of us is ruined in this way. And the good news is that if our original Adam and Eve are redeemed by the coming offspring who will crush the serpent's head, so are Adam and Eve's today. And his remnant reaches you through Jesus and touches every part ruin has ever touched. He knows all where it's hiding, even if you don't. And he touches it and he redeems it. And remnant is stronger than ruin. And so wherever in your life ruin in this way or any way has touched, his remnant, Jesus' grace, his renewal reaches as well and brings restoration. There is ruin abounding, but remnant abounds all the more. Let's pray and then we'll continue in worship. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel that we cannot ruin ourselves to such a degree that your remnant cannot redeem. That your grace 
as much of a threat as it seems, is more powerful than all of our ruin combined. That you know all the places of our shame and of our guilt, of our failing by not doing what we should do and by doing the very things we should not do. And you reach it all with your grace and you transform it. And you don't just say, hey, that's good, I'll take care of it one day. But right now, as you did for Adam, you take care of it and you transform us now. You take our hard hearts and our toxic words and the the, the hate in our hearts and you turn it into blessing and mercy and good now. And we praise you that one day it will be finally and forever finished and that we will never again turn to the ruin we know so well. And so we look for that day and we long for that day and we praise you that until that day you sustain us by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.